after Teresa Davidson Murphy dropped her daughter Jessica off for a weekend volleyball tournament on October 7, 1999, she returned to her home near Rainier, Oregon. When Jessica's stepfather showed up a week late to pick her up instead, Jessica knew something horrible had happened to her mother. What happened that weekend, and why was the family gun missing? Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing very well today. I hope everyone out there is doing well. And I hope you, Tim, are doing better than ever. (laughs) I am doing well. Thank you very much for asking. Also, I hope everyone out there is doing well. We have a highly detailed two-part episode here about the disappearance of Teresa Ann Davidson Murphy. And she's been missing since October 7th, 1999 from Rainier, Oregon. She was born on May 15th, 1965, a white female with brown hair, blue eyes, 34 years old at the time of her disappearance, 5 foot 10 inches, about 140 pounds. And she was wearing a green sweater, blue jeans, white sneakers, a wedding ring, and a gold chain necklace. And yeah, Tim, you said that this is detailed. Uh, Big thanks to the folks over there, the research team, Jen, and everybody at Private Investigations for the Missing, putting together all of this information. Uh, Again, it's another uh, frustrating uh, mystery. It's another frustrating disappearance, tragic disappearance. It really is. And Teresa's daughter, Jessica, submitted the case to Private Investigations for the Missing. And we actually hear from Teresa's mom, Yvonne, in the interview. She uh, conducted an interview with Jennifer Amell, and we will play clips from that interview uh, at times during this episode, actually during these two episodes about Teresa's disappearance. And some of this information came from the Vanished podcast and also the Grim Truth podcast. So we just want to give a big shout out to them and uh, say check out their episodes on Teresa and Davidson Murphy as well if you're really interested in this case. And, uh, you know, it is a compelling case, frustrating mystery. So, yeah, I'm going to be uh, checking out those episodes as well. Yeah, me too. And then that brings up an interesting point to touch on. These families are desperate for help. They they really need the help of the community. So they reach out to multiple podcasts that cover missing person cases. And of course, they reach out to private investigations for the missing because they're a nonprofit. So there, there might be some crossover here and there. And I just want to say it's not intentional. It's not like we're running out of material. So we have to listen to another podcast to get that material. It's that the families are just casting a wide net because they need this information out there. So if you hear something on one and you hear it on another podcast, just shoot it, you know, shoot that our way. Like we don't ever want to unintentionally put something out there that someone else already put out there uh, and claim it's our own. Right. And it's really tough to say no to a family who who asks for coverage. I mean, really, why would you? You know, uh, certainly why would PIs for the missing? I mean, they wouldn't, you know. And we are affiliated with PIs for the Missing, so of course we want to cover cases where a family member asks. And Tim, we're we're taking a trip coming up, April 29th, 30th, and the first of May. We're we're hitting the road, crawl space missing. The the whole band is back together. We're going to Crime Con. Viva Las Vegas, Lance. Viva 
Las Vegas. We are going to CrimeCon. It is going to be a lot of fun. And you can get 10% off your standard badge by using code CRAWLSPACE at CrimeCon.com. And uh, we will see you there. We are hoping to do two live shows at CrimeCon, one missing, one crawlspace. So we will keep you updated on that. Hopefully that gets scheduled in the next uh, month or so. But uh, it's going to be a blast. I can't wait to see everyone again. I can't wait to see everyone as well. I can't wait to see you, dear listener. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please follow us on social media at MissingCSM. Welcome back to the podcast, Jennifer Amell. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you for having me back. We're discussing a very interesting, very mysterious case out of Oregon today. And this case was submitted by Teresa's daughter, Jessica, to private investigations for the missing. And this excellent research was conducted by our friend and colleague, Kathleen Studer. Big shout out to Kathleen for putting this together. Uh, Again, just such thorough work that these uh, volunteers do for private investigations for the missing. And great job to you, Jen, for wrangling everybody and creating a a workflow. And I would even say, even though you're not working directly with them, a work environment that allows them to contribute so effectively. Thank you so much, Lance. And Teresa Ann Davidson Murphy has been missing since October 7th, 1999. She's missing from Hutchinson Road in Rainier, Oregon. Teresa was born on May 15th, 1965. She's white with brown hair, blue eyes, was 34 at the time of her disappearance, 5'10", 140 pounds. She was last seen wearing a green sweater, blue jeans, white sneakers, a wedding ring, and a gold chain necklace. She has a tattoo of a green rose on her right ankle. Her ears are pierced. She's described as willowy, graceful, and soft-spoken. And she's officially classified as endangered missing. And again, that was from Rainier, Oregon. I think it's interesting that she's described as graceful and willowy. Uh, How do you describe someone who's willowy? willowy means that she's like thin and moved i i picture like a dancer almost sure Teresa also goes by terry and her last name may or may not be hyphenated or she could just be going by davidson she could also be using her previous married name of Colpitts, and she is described as very caring and down to earth and here's a clip from Yvonne and Jennifer's interview. I am 80 years old, and I really hope and pray that I find out something before my time's up. So I'd love to know more about Teresa. What was she like? Well, I was her mother, <laughs> naturally. She was actually the only child until I married uh, my second husband, and he had six children. It was probably the best thing in the world. She was the sweetest and the nicest and the best girl that anybody could ever have. I mean, she never gave me any problems. She wasn't crazy about babysitting or anything like that. But then when she got married and had Jesse and Justin, she just, it was just like a new person. Those were her pride and joy, especially Jess. She has three step brothers and two step sisters 
one of the stepbrothers have passed away. She was close to uh, one of them, Chris. He lived in Oregon, and they spoke quite often, and he would call her with his problems, and she called him with her problems. From what I understand, see, every summer I would go up there and spend a month with her. And that last summer, my husband told me, he says, you know, his family lived in uh, Wisconsin, and he hadn't seen his uh, cousins or anybody for 50 years. So he asked me, he says, do you think maybe this year we could go? And I, you know, yeah, definitely. So I called Teresa, and I told her, and she more or less just begged me to come, and she said that she'd pay for my airfare. But she didn't let on that she had problems. But, you know, I just feel that if I had gone, I don't know, if I had gone up there that year, I would have known more than I do now. She was probably one of the best daughters that anybody could ever ask for. And she, you know, she really loved all of her stepsisters and brothers. They all got along really good. And Teresa was last seen by her daughter on Thursday, October 7th, 1999, although her daughter, Jessica, did talk to her on the phone on Saturday, October 9th, 1999. So two days after she's she was known to officially go missing, I guess. So that might be the actual date of her disappearance, is uh, possibly the 9th of October. So that information comes from her daughter. Uh, no one else had seen her during those uh, those two days? Apparently not. So she had remarried a man named Richard, and he claimed to have gone camping that weekend. So yes, the last time uh, someone saw her was her daughter, Jessica, on the 7th. And but she did talk to a couple people on the ninth on the phone. Although I don't I don't know if anybody saw her in person. Her stepbrother Chris also talked to her on the ninth. I guess after she talked to Jessica. And here's another clip from Yvonne and Jennifer's interview. When she got married and and had uh, her children, especially Jessica. I mean, the sun rose and, and set on that child. They were never apart for one second. I've never known anybody that had children that they were that close to their mother. I mean, we went through a couple of two or three years with Jessica after the disappearance, and we were living in California, and she would come for the summer and stay with us, and uh, it was really rough really rough because she cried and cried and cried. She wanted her mother. And from what I understand, she she was the last one to talk to her mom. Right. Yeah. So, on the phone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a bit of background on Teresa. She was born in California. She was the only child of Yvonne Reich, but she had many step-siblings from her mother's relationship after Teresa's dad. She married Stephen Colpitt's and had two children, a son, Justin, and a daughter, Jessica. They divorced, and Teresa and her children eventually moved to Kent, Washington, where Teresa finished her GED and got a job with Boeing, working with computers, according to Jessica. And during this time, Teresa's father died, leaving her with some money and guns. And she asked for advice from her stepdad on financially sound things to do with the money, 
and he told her to buy a house with it. So this must have been a pretty significant amount of money or maybe, you know, a few tens of thousands of dollars, I'm, I'm guessing, if you're going to put a down payment on a house. Again, I'm not sure what the <laughs> housing market is there, but it was enough where she needed advice on it. Interesting about the guns. How many guns were there? Yeah, that is interesting. I wonder if she had an interest in guns or if it just passed to her from the estate. I'm not sure because they're things of value. But it was with this money that she bought a one-story home in Pulleyup, Washington in the late spring of 1998. And it was also during her time in the Kent area when she met Richard George Murphy III. Teresa married Richard on July 4th, 1998, and Richard, Teresa, and her two kids lived in the Puyallup house for a while. And about a year later, in July of 1999, Richard convinced Teresa to move back to his hometown of Rainier, Oregon. She told several people she wasn't happy, having to quit her job and leave her friends to move there. She went there anyway, and they moved onto a property owned by Richard's grandparents that was about four miles south from the town of Rainier. The property is just under about 10 acres and had a mobile home on it. Teresa's son decided he didn't want to live with them any longer and at this point moved in with his dad in Klamath Falls, Oregon, which is a few hours away from Rainier. So in this house, it was just Richard, Teresa, and their daughter, Jessica. So she goes from having a, a house and a job at Boeing, which sounds like a great job. It's a very big company. Pretty secure. Yeah, to being completely isolated and living in a trailer. It's interesting. You said isolated, and that's exactly what you feel when you look at any Google images of 4200 Hutchinson Road in Rainier, Oregon, it's really surrounded by forest. It, it's, there's, there's nothing there. there. There's nothing around. Yeah, and this property was located down a very long road away from the town of Rainier. And like you said, Lance, whatever's surrounding there is like forested. There's no developments, no buildings, nothing. And near the town of Rainier and sort of near their property is a very wide river known as the Columbia River. And we get another clip from Jen speaking with Yvonne. And then, so she, she married this guy, Richard. Right. Murphy. What was your opinion of him? Did you ever meet him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was at the wedding. Okay. And I, I met him. Uh, uh, I just didn't approve. Yeah. You know, plain didn't approve. They weren't even really married a year before, you know, she went missing. Does Jessica have any memory of him or that time right after her mother disappeared? Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. Did she describe his behavior at all? Uh, Yeah. She, you know, she said that, well, my daughter's truck was in the driveway with the keys in it and his van was, she said, spotless, which was really, really different because it never, never, you know, she didn't know really what to think. She just wanted her mother, that's all. And that brings us to the time between October 7th and the 10th of 1999. And on the afternoon of Thursday, October 7th, Teresa dropped newly turned 13-year-old daughter Jessica off at Richard's cousin's house for a three-day sleepover. And Richard's cousin had a daughter Jessica's age, and they both played volleyball and were planning to attend a volleyball tournament on Saturday, October 9th. 
and Richard allegedly leaves the same afternoon after Teresa returns home from dropping Jessica off. He leaves for a camping trip to a place called Brown Creek Campground in the Washington Olympic Peninsula. And how far away is that from where the girls were dropped off where uh, Rainier is? I think that campground is about two hours north of their home in Rainier. And Yvonne said that Teresa asked to go camping with him, and he told her no, he was just going to go camping by himself. And that's important to note that he's going camping by himself uh, two hours north. Like, that's a hike. And Teresa's stepbrother, Chris, talked to Teresa at some point during that day. They are very close and often spoke to each other about relationship problems. And according to Chris, Teresa was whispering complaints about Richard's behavior and saying they were having problems as if he was standing over her. So I guess she was whispering even though he was nowhere in sight. And so that led Chris to believe that uh, Teresa was scared. And uh, they had made plans to meet up that same weekend to talk. And their MO for meeting up would be somewhere about halfway between where she was in Rainier and where he was in Salem, Oregon. This makes me think that potentially Richard had not left the house yet to go camping. It doesn't matter if like the person that you're afraid of is around. If you're just conditioned to be afraid of them, sometimes you'll lower your voice if you're talking about them. But it, it could also mean that he actually was there and potentially listening. I think it's interesting that they chose like a mutual location to talk. Again, that goes to both of your points. Like she's speaking to him in hushed tones on the uh, maybe by condition or on the chance that someone, including Richard, could have heard. But they needed to go to a, a mutually uh, exclusive location, which is interesting. Some place that no, no one would know that they were going, like only the two of them. I mean, that could be purposeful because they felt safer meeting somewhere yeah. else, or yeah. it could mean that like it was just a town in between them, so they wouldn't have to drive all the way to one another's yeah. house. Well, something was obviously uh, important enough to schedule a separate meeting that couldn't be spoken about at that time. Now, after the volleyball tournament on Saturday, October 9th, Jessica did speak with her mom, and Jessica later thought that her mother didn't sound quite like herself, which is interesting. Yeah, there's no further elaboration on this point. Um, but I wonder what she did sound like. Was she hurried? Was she scared? Was she, you know, short with Jessica? Not sure. And so Chris talked to Teresa after she talked to Jessica, but Teresa didn't show up to the meetup with her brother Chris that weekend. So they apparently did set a location that Chris went to, and um, Teresa did not go there. Okay, so these are the last two accounts of Teresa. You have Jessica, her daughter, speaking with her on the 9th. She says that she her mom didn't sound like herself, and then you have Chris speaking with uh, Teresa, presumably to schedule that meetup, and... She ends up not meeting up with him. So those were the two accounts that we had mentioned previously. Yeah. And depending on the time that she spoke to Chris, that Teresa spoke to Chris, I wonder if they were making plans for that same day, like say she had called him in the morning or if it was later in the day, perhaps they were planning to meet on Sunday. Um, regardless, Teresa did not show up for this meeting. And keep in mind, this is the 90s and not many people had cell phones either. So it was difficult to kind of keep in contact or 
change plans or notify people when you do change plans. Pretty sure I had my beeper in 1999, Jen. I was nine, so. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. And it wasn't until the following weekend that Richard answered the phone at his house. He told Jessica that he didn't know where her mom was and that he would be over to pick her up. And he didn't arrive until the next day, picking her up in his work van. According to Jessica, he immediately began badmouthing her mom, Teresa, saying that she was a drug user and not a good person. Do you guys think it's like really strange that a whole week went by before Jessica was picked up? And like, I mean, she was young, so I think her memory might be a little bit hazy about this time in her life. But like, I guess she was staying at her cousin's house. Didn't anybody think that was weird that there were like a whole week had elapsed since she was supposed to have been picked up? I think so. I think it's interesting that it's the following weekend where Richard answered the phone at the house. Uh, that that we, Was he not answering the phone before? And he had just gone two hours north to go camping by himself. Was anybody concerned that he perhaps was missing after or had he been talking with other people? You know, did he come back after that weekend and just didn't answer the phone? I mean, that's a long time to to say I'm going camping by myself and not answer your phone. Yeah. Someone should have answered the phone. Right. So Teresa should have been there and Richard should have been there by then. um, And they were on separate trips during during that that weekend of the 10th. So uh There's no reason that no one should be answering the phone unless both people are missing. Yeah. Well, Teresa was supposed to be at home. She wasn't supposed to have gone on any trips. Well, to meet Chris. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess. Yeah, that's true. To meet Chris on that Saturday or Sunday. But that whole rest of the week, like, I wonder how long Richard said his camping trip would be. I imagine he works and their children go to school. So, like, who's tackling these like daily activities you know is he going to work is jessica going to school who knows i mean it would have had to have been a short camping trip if Teresa wanted to go with him in the first place because if it was a week-long camping trip she probably would have thought to herself well like i can't leave for a week i have to you know take care of uh, jessica there's obviously school etc i mean it doesn't sound like he planned on leaving for a week. It sound, sounds like it was going to be just a couple of nights. But either way, he comes back home and immediately starts badmouthing Teresa to Jessica, right? Yeah. I mean, if if he has no other knowledge about Teresa's disappearance, I imagine, like, from his perspective, Teresa just took off. And I guess I would be a little frustrated, too. I probably wouldn't badmouth, um, you know, my stepkid's mother to them but you know some people show their frustration in different ways but he claimed that he had called the police and some hospitals in the area but no one knew where jessica's mom was where Teresa was richard told jessica that she could stay with him but he'd have to pay five thousand dollars if she did stay which he called a burden so he called jessica's dad to come pick her up and she moved in with her father and brother in claimwith falls This seems like a thing that you would just tell a child who doesn't really understand. That is so bizarre to me. Like, I could keep you, but I would have to pay five grand. Like, what? Yeah, where's where's that money going? I mean, (laughs) to the state? Is it because like it's part of the agreement that? I mean, is that the line that he used? It's like part of the 
custody agreement or something. It's ridiculous. Well, yeah, I mean, he wouldn't have to pay if he was taking care no. of Jessica. It would be her father who would pay child support. Well, I mean, also, I mean, they're adults. They can work out a situation where the mom's missing and, and she can stay with him for a couple of nights. Like, we don't have to get the, the law involved here. I know. That's crazy. I think this definitely sounds like just something you tell a kid. Like, if you don't want to tell them to their face that you can't stay here and I don't want you, they're like, well, I would have you, but you would be a real burden. You would cost me money. So you decide, kid. Like, just guilting the kid into, you know, going elsewhere. Yeah. So he makes Teresa quit her job, move to an isolated trailer hours away from her friends and family, and then badmouths her to her daughter after she goes missing. Um, okay. Sounds like a real stand-up guy. But finally, on October 23rd, Teresa's stepbrother, Chris, and his wife report Teresa missing. So this is on October 23rd. So two weeks later, about two weeks later, they, they report her missing. Uh, they had tried before, apparently, but the police told them to wait, which is really interesting to me that the police would say, just wait a little bit before you report your mom missing. Uh, and it was learned that Richard never actually reported Teresa missing. And all of that information is put together through bits of the investigation that was put out into the public by the press, by Jessica, by Yvonne, and by others. Yeah, so apparently Teresa's truck with the keys and the ignition was found at the property in Rainier. Okay, check that off the suspicious list. Yeah, yeah it, it gets more suspicious because allegedly Teresa's truck was seen at the beginning of the driveway after she went missing, but when Jessica saw it, it was up by the house. Which is a callback to how long that driveway is. It's not like you're looking at your driveway outside and it's 50 feet and you could make that mistake. Like, well, maybe it wasn't down there. Their driveway was incredibly long. You would realize that where the truck was one day and the other day, it's in a completely different spot. So even if that's all innocent, that um, Richard moved the truck because, oh, it's down there. He didn't know why it was down there. The keys are in it. He moves it back closer to the house. Maybe that makes sense. But why the hell are the keys still in the ignition? Because if Teresa is just missing, couldn't she just come back and just open her car door and drive off? Why would he allow that possibility if she was really out there somewhere just missing? Wouldn't he just keep the keys in her house so she at least has to knock on the door? You'd think that while during the search or while people are talking about her being missing, they would pop their head in the truck, take the keys. Yeah, it's a bizarre little detail. And also, there are items that would have been in Teresa's purse that were missing, Apparently, right before she disappeared, uh, she somehow had broken an egg, like a chicken's egg, in her purse and that had yolk all over it. So she had taken out the important items and was carrying them around in some sort of bag. And this bag is what was missing. Right. So for all intents and purposes, her purse was missing, but her purse actually wasn't missing. (laughs) But all the belongings inside her purse were. So that would be uh, potentially a phone if she had one. But again, this is 1999, maybe a pager. Uh, You would think keys, um, money, identification, things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, How did the a broken egg got in it when it was in the closet? (laughs) Well, I don't know. Like, maybe they had chickens. It was a rural property. If you have chickens kind of running around errantly on your property, sometimes they lay eggs in weird places. Mm. So if she was walking around, like was going out to her car and saw an egg, I can see her just like placing it in her purse. Yeah. It also kind of sounds like maybe something a kid would do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But her her kid was 13. Like, I would still do that. 
as like a prank, <laughs> you mean? Like put it in. Yeah, a yeah shoe mom opens a purse yeah. and there's a there's an egg in there. That's kind of funny. Yeah, <laughs> I had a friend who uh, who carried around barbecue sauce in her purse. A woman's purse is a mysterious, yeah, mysterious yeah. place. Now to check another box in the suspicious list, Richard allowed one search of his property at the onset of the investigation. And since then, he has not allowed law enforcement to come back onto the property. They did seize Teresa's computer, uh, some albums and some other items. The property was also searched using canines and a tracker. So this tracker, I'm assuming, is a human being. And it is noted that Richard reported that the family's 1991 Colt 1911 A1 45 caliber pistol was missing. And there's a serial number, 27571178. And in the report, it says that Richard reported it missing a few days after Teresa went missing. But since Teresa was reported missing over two weeks after the last time someone saw her, and not by Richard, we're not really sure if he reported it before or after her sister-in-law reported Teresa missing. So either way is a fact that Richard never reported Teresa missing. Yes, correct. But it is a fact that at some point he did report his gun missing. Correct. And Jessica stated that when Richard picked her up, she noticed that his normally dirty work van, and again, he owned a a pest control and construction business, she said it was spotless this time. Spotless and empty other than a green raincoat. I think that's certainly very interesting. I imagine a truck like that, like if you are doing two different businesses out of the same truck, it would have a lot of stuff in it and potentially be quite messy because those occupations are pretty messy. And and it's and it normally dirty work truck is is from Jessica mm-hmm. that she was used to getting into her dad's work truck and it being dirty and it stood out to her how clean and empty it was except for the green rain jacket which is really interesting because that's consistent right with that type of work there's always stuff going in and out of there there's really almost no time to clean it to keep it you know neat and tidy yeah i mean it's definitely a possibility that like he had taken his truck camping too and had cleaned out the van after he put his camping stuff away just trying to play you know into richard's court here but it's not looking good well interesting that you mentioned the camping because jessica also stated that she noticed that all of richard's camping gear was still in the shed and did not look like it had been moved recently i don't know if anyone you know here goes camping but once you come back you kind of just dump your stuff and Maybe you stack it back up and, and put it away neatly, but you're just kind of done with it at that time. And and if if it didn't look like it had been moved recently, it probably hadn't been moved recently. Yeah, I I definitely believe Jessica's statement here. Although, like, it, it all depends on what Richard's personality was, too. I mean, my dad, for example, is kind of has, like, military precision when he goes camping. Like, he'll pack the car perfectly. As soon as he comes back, he puts it back in its place, vacuums out the car. Like he's very diligent about these things. It seems from the previous statement that Richard did have a normally messy van. So that kind of shed some light on his personality. But I mean, Jessica's word is pretty important here because she's the one who knows Richard's behaviors, right? Okay, yeah, good point. I'll 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 pedal back a bit on my statement where you, you, the the camping gear was was messy. I mean, it's all 
all different types of people go camping. You can camp and deal with military precision, or you can be a slob about it. I guess I was just a slob about it. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about Chris a little bit, Teresa's stepbrother, who Teresa was going to meet. And uh, Chris actually went to that location, but Teresa never did, is, uh, is what he said. And uh, he took a polygraph test and passed it. But he also said that um, he felt like the police didn't believe him when he gave information uh, to them, which, you know, is, is his interpretation. But I think they're they're kind of trained to be sort of stone faced in uh, w- when they're getting information. Mm-hmm. Richard, on the other hand, refused to take a polygraph. Well, isn't that interesting? The one brother that she was really close to, he volunteered for a lie detector test where Richard declines it. He will not have it. And I felt the very beginning, I felt that if he had nothing to hide, there was no reason why he would turn it down. And see, his whole family, his uncle, his mother, his stepfather, his brother, everybody in his family lives in that one town. I mean, it's his right to refuse. They can be not always accurate and incriminate somebody who was innocent, but it's definitely a telling thing when somebody refuses a polygraph. Yeah, absolutely. Because it doesn't even mean it. You can't even use it in court. It's just an investigative tool for the police. So absolutely highly suspicious if someone uh, passes on it. I feel like law enforcement asks people to take polygraphs just for that initial, like, are they going to accept or refuse? And they use that bit of information to determine whether or not to look into this person. Because it is telling. Because you imagine if you don't want to take a polygraph, you have something to hide, potentially. I think that also uh, goes to what Chris was saying, that he didn't think that the police believed him. Because I agree with you. I, I feel like it's the the idea of the polygraph, of the lie detector test, that the police are looking uh, for the reaction from the person they're uh, administering it to. It's not so much the results of it. And I think it's telling that Chris was concerned that they didn't believe him, even though he did pass, uh, which also goes to them looking at the reaction and being stone-faced about stuff. Um, They probably believed him, but they probably wanted to see the reaction that he had with them not coming out and saying, that makes sense to me. Your story makes sense. They just probably were stone-faced and that concerned him so maybe that that speaks to him you know maybe that speaks to his really his desire to be taken seriously and and wanting to make sure that the people who were in charge of the investigation were going in the right direction yeah for sure and that's not to say that richard didn't refuse to be interviewed by police he was definitely interviewed he just didn't take a polygraph i don't know if i was in the same situation, I might refuse a polygraph because I think they're they're just so inaccurate and can be used to incriminate you. Or you like if you are a really nervous person and you have a high heart rate, even though you're innocent, you can fail a polygraph and then the police have that much more incentive to look into you. So I really don't fault people for refusing to take them. But the investigation is still open. New York, Oregon State Police have kept the investigation open. And they're not commenting about the case or releasing any records yet, which I don't know how I feel about that. I guess, obviously, they want to keep everything close and they want to make sure that the investigation isn't compromised. I'm just wondering at what point do they 
think that it's been long enough when mm-hmm. it's 1999 and we're rounding the corner to 2022. So you're looking at 23 years, over two decades. Yeah, it really only makes sense to keep um, information so close to the chest if you are actively working on it. And since so much time has passed, it seems unlikely that many leads are coming in at this point. And Teresa's daughter, Jessica, stated that since she was so young, no one kept her in the loop regarding information from law enforcement, which is something I feel like we we see a lot with the uh, second generation um, of, uh, for, from that victim. They try to get involved. Um, we've seen that in ca- countless examples now. And uh, a lot of times a relationship does develop, which is great to see. And Richard finally called Yvonne to let her know Teresa was missing about 10 days after Teresa went missing. And Richard said the reason he waited so long is because Teresa had her gun with her and he knew that she could take care of herself, apparently, with her gun. What situation is she getting in that she needs to shoot things? A bear fight? I mean, if he he was uh, indicating that she was into drugs, maybe he thought that she would be in some sort of situation where uh, she needed to protect herself around drug dealers or people of that ilk. But uh, that is a ridiculously stupid excuse that you didn't do anything because she had a gun and she could take care of herself. I mean, was it just an infinite amount of bullets? Did she have a machine gun? Like how, what is this? Like it's your wife, the, the, the mother of a child. Like maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just giving society too much credit here. Yeah. It's a weird one. It's not like she can eat with the gun or it's not like the gun is going to clothe her. It's a really weird one. Okay, this next point is confusing to me. When Yvonne asked to talk to Jessica, Richard did not let her. And then after she went missing, I called and wanted to talk to Jessica. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't let me talk to her. I called twice. And uh, he wouldn't let me talk to her. And then he called her father. And in the middle of the night, had his fa- her father come and pick her up. In the middle of the night? Yes. And I wouldn't trust Richard as far as I could throw him. So somewhere along the lines of this conversation, Yvonne asked to talk to Jessica, and Richard did not let her. And I, I, I would really like to know if, if, if Richard was there with Jessica. It seems like there was, like, a time period between like when Jessica was staying, like still staying at Richard's house and before she went to live with her father. So maybe like what they said, this was about 10 days after Teresa went missing. So maybe Jessica did stay there for those 10 days before going to her father's. The only reason Yvonne would ask to talk to Jessica through Richard is if Jessica was staying with him. Right. Right. Yeah. Unclear there. Well, it's more controlling behavior from yeah. Richard, so that really tracks with you know his profile of uh, isolation and, uh, and controlling. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And maybe maybe Jessica had some sort of information on her, saw something, or that he was trying to tell Jessica she didn't actually see, and just keep the like you said, Tim, the controlling aspect, keep it all all in his circle, all in his control. Thanks a lot for listening. Part two will be out next week. If you have any information, please contact the Oregon State Police at 503-731-4000.
3020.